0: Hey there, Next real listeners, this is Andy. Before we dive into this episode, I wanted to let you know about an exciting change. As you may have noticed, we have been including episodes of one of our other shows, Movies We Like, in this feed. Well, we are thrilled to announce that Movies We Like has grown so much that it's now ready to strike out on its own. From now on, to catch the latest episodes of Movies We Like, you'll want to head over to its dedicated feed and hit that subscribe button. We've got plenty of other great content lined up, and we don't want you to miss a thing. Don't worry, though, the next Real Film Podcast isn't going anywhere. We'll still be bringing you the same in-depth discussions and analysis of your favorite films right here in this feed. So if you love what we do with Movies We Like, be sure to search for it in your favorite podcast app and subscribe today. Thanks for being a part of our podcast journey, and now let's get back to the show.
1: Head to NextReal.com
0: slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreal.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of
1: the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way.
0: Welcome to Movies We Like, part of the True Story FM Entertainment Podcast Network. I'm Andy Nelson. And that over there is Pete Wright. I'm Pete Wright. On today's episode, we have invited cinematographer Lynn Moncrief to talk about Paul Thomas Anderson's Magnolia, a movie he likes. Lynn, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Thanks for having me. We are thrilled to have you uh, to talk about this Movie. this is a big movie you sent over a lot of uh interesting movie potentials to talk about and we picked this one uh because there's so much <laughs> to talk about with this movie so we are thrilled to chat about this one i'm very excited yeah we booked the rest
1: of the afternoon with you so that we can really <laughs> yeah i mean really dig in
0: this be a conversation <laughs> for a long time on this movie right yes. one episode per story pretty yeah. much exactly well, before we start talking about Magnolia, and we'll certainly have plenty to talk about that, let's talk a little bit about you and your work as a cinematographer. So, let us I mean, let's just start at the beginning. How did you kind of uh, end up fa- finding cinematography and becoming uh, somebody behind the camera? From an early age, I was always
2: fascinated with movies. My parents were fascinated with movies. So, in in some ways, I, I kind of blame my parents because they took me to everything. <laughs> I remember it just as like one anecdote, my mom took me out of school one day to go see a, a reprint of uh, Lawrence of Arabia. Wow. So that that's how of, of one of many examples of kind of where just the the love of cinema was from my parents. Um, and they're not involved in filmmaking in any aspect. You know, when I started to go through junior high and high school, I was very involved in still photography as well. Took all the photography classes with the dark room and and did everything. And I I think just once I got to college and started taking cinema classes, when I was going, they were still doing film projects on film. And I found that I was because of my background in still photography, I was one of the few students that could actually expose correctly. For a lot of these sixteen millimeter projects that we had to to do, and so from there, I, a lot of the my classmates would ask me to shoot their movies, and through that process and that time, and, and starting to understand who does what on movies, became very clear in that 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 era that. Okay, this is what I want to pursue.
0: Well, and and you spent, I mean, quite a a while, like working in shorts and and independent cinema and everything. Like you were doing this for, uh, you've been doing it for quite a long time. Like building up your portfolio, working on a huge variety of projects. And uh, you know, I, I suppose the the key with all of that is always, you know, building uh, your network and making connections and uh, and showing people that you know what you're doing. And I think something that I find interesting as I look through a lot of the projects you did, not all of the projects, but certainly there has been a draw to films that are a little more thriller, uh, horror, you know, you certainly have been drawn to a lot of those sorts of stories. And I wonder if, did you find yourself like happily pigeonholed doing all of that? Or is that a direction? Yeah, what do we have
1: your mom and dad to thank for that? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, <laughs>
2: my mom and dad took me all to the big epic. My dad loved Westerns. My mom loved more the art house movies and, and kind of those things. I, it, it was interesting. I think uh, horror film found me... I think more so than I found horror. And it wasn't only, you know, I've had the later appreciation to what that genre is and can bring because I was, I was very frightened of horror movies to start off with my, I have an older sister and I remember her having sleepovers with friends and they would watch like Friday the 13th and these type of movies and absolutely scare themselves. And as a younger brother, I was totally, I was too scared to even know what that movies they were watching. So it wasn't until uh, really uh, college or after college, until I got hired to shoot, it was my second movie, a horror movie, that that director was like, I need to watch all these films and why they are important. You know, we sat down and watched, you uh, know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre and, and like John Carpenter's The Thing. And of course, I, I was already exposed to The Shining, which I loved very much, but that was kind of seemed like a broader movie than just like the typical slasher. So over time, I I realized within that sandbox of a genre of the horror film and, and what like of recent movies like get out and some others that, and they've always kind of been there is that they've, they've been kind of a reflection on other themes than just the simple slasher gore that people expect. But so, yeah, I would say over the last, you know, I kind of started in indie movies. I had gone to AFI, which kind of lends itself into Magnolia in a, kind of another way. But I went off to American Film Institute and studied cinematography. And when I get out, it was a lot of indie movies. And out of indies, horror movies are kind of part of that. They've made on the cheap, typically. And, you know, I found myself being asked to do more. So in a way, I did get a little pigeonholed. And it's been a bit of, you know, a, a journeyman's process to kind of to where I've started now and just now start to kind of elevate into bigger budgets. But I have to say, the more I do, the more fun I have each time I do it. And, and I mean, cinematography, y- you can really kind of flex your muscles a bit, I think, in horror film because it, it tends to rely so much on suspense through camera. And lighting and darkness and some of these elements that as a cinematographer, you you really quite fun to to delve into than just maybe a standard drama. So I've been very fortunate that, you know, I've worked with really interesting directors of recent in in the genre and uh, that like to push the envelope visually. And so I'm happy to continue to be pigeonholed in it if that needs to be. (laughs) I mean, I have a great appreciation uh, for so many movies, but I I think I take it to a deeper level. I think now that I'm I'm in the craft, sure. You know, than just beyond just what maybe at face value a lot of people see the genre to be. You know, Uh,
0: you know, it's interesting because there are so many um, elements within i suppose every genre has their tropes but certainly there are a lot in horror that end up you know and some of them are specifically camera related like you know framing a character where you know somebody's immediately behind them and when that character moves you reveal something like do you find yourself playing and, and like really uh, reveling in the tropes that you get to play with do you find yourself saying how can i do this where i don't fall into just doing it with the trope but like how, how does that play into that um process i was thinking the other day i mean I mean, someone's used this
2: analogy before but you know like magic tricks and making movies there's always been that kind of connection right uh and of course like christopher nolan made that movie but it, it uses he it kind of discusses but it, in some ways it applies to horror too you know you've got misdirections and you have your expectations of a framing and maybe there's an empty doorway behind someone's shoulder and there there's an expectation of the audience of what that suspense lends it to you know i had a professor at AFI he said to us one day is like the 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 scariest shot you could have in a movie is a a slow dolly towards a doorway an empty doorway <laughs> and and, yeah. it, and i think it it really kind of the craft of making a horror movie and the craft of a cinematographer involved with, of that process yeah, I, I you should be kind of educated what those elements are because there is an expectation. How do you play with that expectation? You know, you have false suspense moments and then the jump scares and like I said, misdirections and other kind of elements. That's the the fun when, when you do it really well is you, you play off what's people's expectation of the genre. And I, I find it actually quite freeing creatively to to work in genre because it does give you a a blueprint to, in which to work from and then just kind of like build a different structure off that blueprint
1: i i think that's a really i i love that you said the slow dolly tour to door because that gives me a chance to name drop one of my weirdest weirdly obsessions the weird obsessions right now which is skinnamarank have you seen that yet? skinnamarank, skinnamarank. Well, now you have homework, Lynn. You didn't know you were coming for homework, but now you have it. Skinnamarink, you've got to watch this. It's uh, In terms of just use of, of camera and, like, when you talk about horror tropes, like, there is yeah, I want to play with horror tropes, but I also want to beware when I'm falling into the trap of trope. Like, because we're so wired for these things that we want to make sure that the audience knows we're playing the greats. Like we're trying to do something interesting with something that we know you expect and not we accidentally fell into the the trope pit and we're doing just the same thing everybody does. And I look at the tonal differences of the films that you've worked on, just the straight camera tone between things like The Wind and Vengeance and now Five Nights at Freddy's. Very different tones, and yet I think artfully playing the greats, and I think that's a, that is a uh, you know to take a movie that that turns expectations within genre and makes it feel like a i'm in a wholly different universe is a pretty special thing to
2: do like how often are you thinking about like am I getting trapped in a trope I think it becomes a thing that you you talk with the director for sure, like early in the process you're you're kind of saying how how are we approaching this movie? You know, you're talking about maybe other visual influences to to build that communication. And you kind of say, are we doing the cliched thing? Are we doing the thing that's expected of us? And maybe that's the, the right thing to do. Uh, yeah. You don't want to be so anti-everything. But I, I think it, it, it's trying to decide what is the movie we're making you know, for a lot of the directors I work with, we try to, at least for me, I, I try to come up with what I call like the visual vocabulary of that movie. You know, every movie, you kind of set your rule sets. And I think the audience will always be with you on that ride. If you have the rules that they, they're committed, they, they, you trust the, f- the filmmaker, right? And, and maybe this speaks to Magnolia later, because it has its own <laughs> kind of, you you have to give a lot of faith to watch this movie to believe some of the things that happened. But um, I just think if you certainly kind of become our own purveyors of your own rule set and you, and you just have honest conversation, at least I found with the directors, like are we doing something that we've seen 10,000 times and is it going to be boring if we do it this way? But for me, you know, going about the thing, you know, I've always tried to be a bit of a chameleon. I'm sure, it's for others to decide if I have an own aesthetic or style, but for me, I, I I like to try to do something a little different on every project, um, and you know, grow from it. So,
0: yeah, I mean, you know, I think speaking to to all of this, I mean, uh, you've worked with uh, director Emma Tammy a few times, um, The Wind, which uh, Pete mentioned you you did with her, which is kind of a frontier, uh, western, prairie horror. Vibe, So you're kind of crossing the horror and the Western tropes in that one. And most recently, you just did Five Nights at Freddy's, which is, you know, a kind of a Chuck E. Cheese horror movie based on, you know, a very popular video game. So you're also finding that there are a lot of elements within not even necessarily tropes, but certainly within the world that had already been created and how are we going to adapt that? And this, this I suppose, leads to all the different conversations that you have with Emma over the course of both of these projects as far as, because, I mean, just I've seen the wind, I've seen the trailer for five nights. Obviously, they look vastly different. And so I I think that's, you know, an interesting element and probably speaks to your point of like the conversations that you need to have about, okay, what are those what are the signatures that we're going to include in this to make sure that it feels that the camera work feels like it fits in the world that we're depicting here?
2: Yeah, absolutely. With Emma, you know, character story, emotions, these are things that, you know, she's very, it's very important to her, you know? so when we first outlined, it's been, uh, five nights was my fourth movie with her with the wind was the very first movie. But I have to say, even though the, when was very tiny, at least thirty times larger budget wise was you know for five nights. <laughs> five nights. I mean, it, it's hardly <laughs> advanced, but I would say our process was the same. I mean, it, we we sat down with the script and the material, and again, kind of went through. and Emma really likes to create rules. You know, like we're assi- have assign elements that what is the emotion of the scene, what is the character going through. We only move the camera for this particular thematic element. We don't move the camera for other. When you look at the win, it's all about not moving the camera. It only moves very like very specific things when you get into this kind of supernatural element. That was a, that was like our Bergman movie because we referenced a lot of Bergman, a lot of Kurosawa. It was a very like very specific framings and very like do like can we make a captivating movie without moving the camera um she wanted that just very specific framing five nights is very departure of that but it's still like the process was like what is the emotion of the scene what are the characters what a what's our like emotional perspective of this And let's, let's have rules that we only do this type of camera movement or framing or lenses for this and only for that, you know, we set sometimes not what we do or what, you know, what we don't do. And maybe we don't use certain colors for certain scenes and we associate like to try to break it down in every department and, and I try to bring my own thoughts to the table for that as well. And So it's interesting that when you go from like such different budgets, the the process has remained the same with both of us. And, you know, for Freddy's, we really wanted to kind of push both of ourselves out of our comfort zones of how do you approach this material. And obviously it was different because we're adapting it from source material and you have to kind of adhere to certain elements that was very loved by the fans of this movie as a very popular video game
1: really begs the question like like it begs that that's one of my big questions is video game movies are not historically celebrated by their fans so much and i'm i'm curious i i just as a, a sidebar how did you how did you rationalize that and i'll say you and emma and like the team like here we are taking this property that is beloved by its fans and think okay we're ready. We're the team to take this on and try to do something different.
2: What's interesting about the f- the video game, and I think maybe is different from other adaptations, although there's been more success recently, like uh, The Last of Us, which I think was awesome. I mean, I, I didn't know anything about the video game, but I thought the series was really well done. And you've got like Mario Brothers and all these other kind of iterations. But, you know, I, I think, Five Nights was already a unique video game within the video game world. And I wasn't like a big gamer, but you know, it started as it it is or was and continues to be like an independent, you know, video game created by one person versus maybe other video games from much, much larger kind of conglomerate. And I think it had its own kind of cult status as a video game. And I think when we translate it over that the creator Scott. Was already already so involved in the making of the movie as well that I think it lends itself different, and the way that it was put to was really making a movie for the fans, than than necessarily like diluting it. You know, the, I think the hope was the perspective was like let's really make it for the fans and what they love about the video game. and and expand it and hope that it expands to a wider audience versus like diluting where I think other movies have diluted to try to only open it to a broad base. And I think that was kind of the new unique kind of philosophy that was pressed upon when I came in, that it really had to. So I think it just has a different take and I I hope it'll be interesting what the response is, but I, I, from what I gather, a lot of people are very excited for the movie.
1: Well, and I, I think you that great point. Like having Scott Cawthon on uh, it, with his name as high as it is in the production team is really important. Um, what'd you do to get yourself in the in the zone of this movie? Are you are you one of the crew that played through the whole thing? Did you?
2: I, I don't think I never got past the third night. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> okay, I, I did play the game. I watch a lot of YouTubers play the game. What was interesting is I, I have a nine year old daughter. So once I started to accumulate lots of research for this, for a lot of books, and I started watching the game, and we start. I bought the game uh, on my Switch, and my daughter was like, "What are you doing? <laughs> you know, what is this? What is this world? Can I learn about it?" And so, I, I've kind of joked before, like she she became my unofficial research assistant because. <laughs> she became so obsessed <laughs> with it and wanted That's to awesome. see every youtuber play it that every day she would tell me some new fact and she started she read because i the the canon's quite large there you know there's novels and different things and i bought all that and she started reading all the books and telling me different aspects from it so just even from immediate you you see how quickly people have responded to this world which uh, i think gave me a new just appreciation of what I was about to undertake with this, but uh, yeah, sadly I never survived the full, the full five. <laughs> nights. I'm
1: so sorry um, for you. You know,
2: much of what Emma wanted to really bring from it was really the experience of like the, when you play it, the first person experience of how you, of the terror of not knowing, like you only get glimpses of things, the hearing of stuff, not knowing what's beyond the door this kind of jump scare beats it, it it had to have that still like core to it of the movie even though you you're translating a, a a totally different narrative and you have to draw people in obviously with characters and so it's not just gameplay that you're watching for you know an hour and a half plus but you you're pulled into some kind of narrative but it still had to have that like at its core the same kind of thing that you loved about the suspense of the, the video gameplay. And so that was always kind of a leading factor and, and a lot of the approach for, mm-hmm. especially once we're in Freddy's, you know, there's lots of nods and lots of all the other departments working together to create additional e- Easter eggs and all these other things, you know, for me f- photographically, you know, so much from the, because it really pulls from the first game and it's all about security monitors. So that obviously had to, be an aspect we had to really play a, a big homage to from the video gameplay, but it had to expand beyond that and had we had to bring our own kind of aesthetics to it as well.
1: It's hard to make any sort of judgment just because we haven't seen the movie yet, but I'll tell you, I mean from the trailer you really get a sense of how invested you are in in the security camera experience, right? Like that is so much a part of Mike's experience in there. The 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 piece I'm I'm most interested in when you talk about aesthetics is what you're thinking is when you go into to thinking about the actual animatronics and making them scary. They kind of do the work themselves or
0: uh, Well, and especially because you know to add on to that question, since it is like, you know, Jim Henson henson's workshop created these big things the process of not only like making them scary but um, shooting them in a way where you're not seeing the people who are helping move them
2: yeah i mean first of all it it was absolutely amazing to work with jim henson company because it already like was a big nostalgic fest for me yeah absolutely as a kid growing up and it, it was they have a creature shop in burbank and you know fortunately i was brought in very early with When they started having their meetings, when Emma initially, I was very like fly on the wall with a lot of those creative discussions. But when it started to come down to actually building and stuff, we started to do our camera tests with them uh, very early on. It was very important, I think, for Emma, for Scott, for Blumhouse to—they wanted to do as much in camera as possible and not rely a lot on CGI. So it was from the get-go. It was like they brought on Jim Henson. And so the initial test was just like, how do these look on camera? How do you light them? How do they look scary? In what light? How do they move? And then under what configurations, because there were several, some are fully animatronic with servos and everything. Some elements had to be with stunt people and a, a, like a combination a part stunt part animatronics part different things. So, a lot of the testing phase was to see what looked great from what direction. It, and you had other like Foxy, which is all full exoskeleton. So, you know, when you're moving Foxy, you're coming under other more traditional puppeteering, you know, when you're dealing with that. it was all very exciting for me. Cause I, I've never worked with puppeteers and there's all these big teams and uh, really exciting to see Emma work with them in terms of trying to come up with different personality traits under what conditions they do. For me as a cinematographer, it's just like what, like you said, lighting is like, it, there's that fine line of scary to goofy. But it, what's interesting about Freddie is that it's not, there's like different tonal things that why I think is loved by so many is it's scary. But then there is this kind of levity within it i mean i i don't think it's not just like volume 11 at the horror you know there, there's some other kind of elements in it and so it, it it was through that testing to find what maybe hits what tone for what and what kind of lining for what and you know we had a what was important for emma was you have this young character uh abby uh you have mike who's the main character he's the the, the um Security guard. But, you know, Abby's perspective is a very childlike world view versus right. the actual audience is for the difference. And, and she wanted to play with those kind of ideas. And, you know, we talked a little bit of like the, the Spielberg movie, um, like Jurassic Park, where it's you go in, it's like all fantastical, and then everything goes wrong. And it's like, what you were like, this is amazing. is like, oh, what have we gotten ourselves into? And Spielberg does that so well. So, you know, we we wanted to have different facets and different perspective moments with those animatronics. So, we tested a lot, uh, and and even while filming, you had puppeteers and stunt people, and they had their own core group group doing a lot of previs and a lot of discussions with Emma and, and them to 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 find out. So, it wasn't it, there was weeks and weeks and weeks of just like parsing through all the elements. So, you know, by the time we get in the set, a lot of, a lot of those things had been figured out. Like we want that kind of look or want this. And there's always certain things that kind of surprise you on the day. But I mean, to your point, it's like, it was always on our mind. Like you you don't want it to get so goofy or people are like out of their seat and they're like, Oh, I don't buy this moment. And so you're trying to find the right tone because I, 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 it could potentially go very goofy very quickly. And that was certainly a challenge when I first read it. I was like, okay, animatronics, you know, haunted animatronics. Yeah, killing it's kind people, of the <laughs> entire... Whatever, yeah. the pizzeria, you're like, you know, <laughs> so like I, I haven't really experienced like what, how do you do this. And I, for me personally, too, I would look at a movie like Alien, the original Ridley Scott, because... I mean, not so much that, but, you know, when you get like just the glimpses of creatures in your mind in a horror movie, you kind of fill in the gaps. And when you watch the behind the scenes of like Alien and you look at the person in the suit, it looks. I know, it's it's so goofy. And so (laughs) it's kind of like that same idea. It's like you're kind of parsing out. And a lot of that, too, is just editorial, um, you know, on Emma and the editor, like finding those moments. But for me, in the test, it was like, what looks good? We wanted to do some shadow play. We wanted to see, you know, what fabric looks good under what light. Emma and I really wanted to li- use a lot of mixed tones, uh, you know, when you get into a lot of the arcade and, and kind of neon light elements. And not all colored light looks good on these creatures, you know. Um, so we had to be very sensitive to that, and we wouldn't have been able to do it if had not done all the camera tests. Yeah, right, right.
1: Well, it's very fixture forward. That trailer, when light bulbs go on and signs light up, I am in it. I am like fourteen years old at my neighborhood arcade. It's it looks it looks terrific.
0: Yeah, it reminds me of like yeah, you know, I had a showbiz pizza growing up near me and. Yeah there's yeah yeah it, it took my kids to Chuck E Cheese and so these are things that certainly have circulated and uh, I just I the idea of <laughs> these these places with these giant you know creatures for kids I don't know I think there's just innately something creepy about it which obviously I think this probably sp- the video game probably spurred on things like there was the banana split movie and there was the one with Nicolas Cage. And, and like, there were these other ones where it was like, even that like weird Winnie the Pooh serial killer movie, like yeah, yeah, big, totally. big, creepy creatures in costumes. And, and I think this is like right in line with that, uh, but it's really like, this is the original because it stemmed from the video game that probably inspired all that stuff. So
2: that's my understanding. Yeah. I, I talked to Emma early on and I don't know if what she saw or not, but it was, it was kind of like a very concerted effort that I don't look at any of those other movies. Cause I, I was Smart. just concerned I, I mean, I already kind of knew instinctually what we probably didn't want to do, but I, I just didn't want to be like, have any stress of having seen how somebody else tackled any of this. And I knew there was probably a lot of campiness in some of those. And even though I'm a huge Nicholas Cage fan. So I probably, I might go back and watch that. Now that Uh, you're done with this
0: one. (laughs) It was (laughs) very like,
2: I I had to only drink from the well of Freddy's and really let that consume me and maybe use some other archetypal movies that we could have some inspiration from that just really kind of set the tone. I think, yeah,
1: now that you're done, you definitely should watch the Nick Cage one because it's another one of his truly on-brand, subtle and nuanced performances.
2: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's outstanding. <laughs> it's very fun. <laughs> when you were speaking to like the creep factor, I mean, I did come across, because I was kind of, not to get too heady, but I, I think it does speak to a lot of horror movies that Freud had writ- written this uh, this uh, essay, In essence, said that the things that you loved as a child, you're frightened as an adult. And he kind of used the example that you know, every child wishes that their doll was alive and could talk to them. But if, in (laughs) fact, that never came to fruition as an adult would be a very frightening thing. And And then we have Megan. I don't think it's without, it speaks to something internal because certainly horror movies, when you hear, like, a nursery rhyme being sung by children in a horror movie, it's a very, and I I think we've always kind of had that instinctual element of that duality. And, and I I think it was very fun to have, you know, Freddy's has that, there's a bit of a nostalgic element, but it also speaks to what we love as children really responded to. Now, that's so great. You wouldn't want to approach that as adults. (laughs) I think it kind of spoke to that thematically, you know, very much. That's awesome. That's so true.
0: Well, we're excited to uh, check it out when it comes out and, uh, you know, certainly wish you all the best of luck with it. I think, though, right now, this is a good uh, time to transition our conversation to the massive opus of Magnolia.
2: Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a line to you from an opera. I want you to give me that line back in the language in which the opera was originally written. And for a bonus 250, uh, you can sing it. I'm Stanley Spector.
1: There is the story of a boy genius.
0: Willa Thomas Kidd. Jean the Peaceful year
1: And the game show
0: host. Uh, Jimmy Gator. Ooh. Live from Burbank, California. First question for 25. This French playwright and actor joined the Béjar troupe of actors. And the ex boy genius. I'm Chris Kidani Smith. I used to be smart, now I'm just stupid. There is the story of the dying man. I'm Earl Partridge.
2: I have a son, you know. You do? Uh, find him. I'm Frank T.J. Mackey. His lost son.
0: What did he say? Because I am not going to take care of him. What does he want?
2: And the dying man's wife. I'm
0: the Partridge.
2: I took care of him through this, Alan. What now, then? Me and him. Do you understand? There's right. no one else. No one else.
1: The caretaker.
0: Hello. I'm Phil Parma. See, this is uh, the scene of the movie where you help me out.
1: And there is the story of a mother. I'm Rose Gator. You come home soon after the
2: show. I love you. I love you,
1: too. And the daughter.
2: I'm Claudia Wilson Gator. Now that I've met you, would you object to never seeing me again?
1: And the police officer in love.
0: I'm Officer Jim Curring. Oh, My life is very stressful, and I'd hope to have a relationship that is very calm and undemanding and loving. So if you are this person, please leave me a message at box number 82.
1: And this will all make sense in the
2: end.
0: not an easy job I have to take everything and play as it lays sometimes people need a little help sometimes people need to be forgiven and that is a very tricky thing on my part making that call but you can forgive someone well that's the tough part
1: What can we forgive?
2: Was that unclear? Kind of. God. All
0: right. So, Lynn, uh, let's, let's talk about your first time if you can remember like when did you see magnolia and and how did it hit you do you recall yes i was living
2: here in la at the time i was living in santa monica i don't remember the exact theater i feel like i saw it at the aero theater but I, you know that's an art house theater so i don't know if i saw it there or not i do recall that it was like a single theater type place um cuz i know i had a big release but I do remember being absolutely floored when I saw this movie. That I did go back and see it multiple times. I I have two D DVDs on it too. <laughs> Weirdly, I and it was right at that moment where, you know, I was already out of college. I'd moved here to L.A. I'd kind of hopped back and forth from East Coast to West Coast, and you just that, I was in my twenties and just really like. What, what am I doing with my life? And I think it was certainly a pivotal movie because it was so inspirational and it came from, and I'm just rewatching again the last couple of days, just like, I, all I could say was just an inspirational movie from the filmmakers. And it, and it was not whatever, the experience was so unlike anything i had ever seen at that point. It was almost like operatic uh, in a way. I you know I think it was one of the movies at that time that really was like, kind of kicked my butt in gear and said, you know what? I I really, if I can't make that movie, because I'm probably never going to make that movie. It was like, at the one point, very discouraging, because you see those movies occasionally. <laughs> like, I'm never going to aspire to that film. So why, also, bother? Like, you know, why bother? Yeah, why bother? At the same it time, down. it's like, I want to be a part of that. yeah You know, it was yeah. like a yeah. very inspirational time. And when I think of like core movies that just it, it maybe don't really shape me aesthetically but just inspire me to go to want to be part of this community that was one of them and I, like i said I went back multiple times and watch a movie because it's so dense and so
0: layered and like i said i'm a bit intimidated even talking about it because <laughs> there's so much well, there yeah and this is early in paul thomas anderson's career when you know as a writer director the stories were very big very bold he hadn't hit that point in his career when it was the little more kind of intimate stories like The Master, There Will Be Blood, The Phantom Thread, things like that, that certainly have I mean, there's certainly very much Paul Thomas Anderson films, but at the same time, you're not getting, like, the insane camera moves and just the, the the crazy fast, like, editing style, jumping from story to story. The story that we're getting in a film like this, which is just, like, it, it really was revisiting it. it was kind of mesmerizing to... Remind myself how much energy he like infused in the film. And you said operatic. I wrote that down in my notes and bombastic, and just like, and it's so fluid too. And that's just, it's amazing, like with, you know, nine dominant characters that were following over the course of this story that were moving so effortlessly from one to the next to the next and back and forth. And yet we're still able to kind of keep tabs on all of them and what they're up to and how it all connects. And it's just, it's really amazing to me.
2: That's why I said it, it feels like such an inspirational movie. Like it wasn't, I feel like it could only be made by someone who's, I mean, he's obviously an incredible talent, but at the same time, maybe uh, a certain naivete of inspiration that just kind of went forth and said, there's nothing going to stop me to make this movie because I don't know. And, and I know it, it. it's a lot of critics, maybe slammed at the time as feeling potentials of this, but I just feel like he, he just jumped off this ledge and just took everybody with him. And to me, when watching it, it almost felt beyond movies. It, it felt like one big composition, right? It, it just flows like you said, there's this real intensity in the beginning to kind of intro everybody. And there's like a pace, like it feels like nothing was ever an afterthought because music in this is so like ingrained and obviously the Amy Mann songs as well, that he was just constructing this composition of peaks and valleys in the tone. And it just feels so compositional because it's so mosaic and layered on top of each other on top of each other and then you have these elements that kind of speak outside of narrative with like the the overdub of the music video kind of elements people singing to to the the fanatical elements of the ends with the frogs and it's just i very few people can do it right i mean just watching again just inspired me like how do you do that? Because I know how difficult making a movie. And I think equally as interesting because I started watching it just to make it's worth, I mean, in by hearing this, if you haven't seen it, it's just the making of documentary that was kind of like behind the scenes is also just equally fascinating of how this film just kind of came about.
1: It is one of those movies that just screams like I, this movie can't, like couldn't be made another way and yet one of the complaints is like oh, three and a half hours is egregious to me it, it, this is one of the movies that never feels like three and a half hours it's just a breath because it is so propulsive i want to talk about how you see camera i mean this is robert Elswit. this is legendary camera it is I mean, we've talked about uh, there will be blood on this show that's another uh, Elswit. Uh, we've we've got just a lot he's just he's a legendary guy as a cinematographer you watch this movie
2: what inspires you about how this movie was shot i mean it's interesting because there's kind of like two counterpoints in terms of the cinematography because it's almost like two separate things there's camera work and then there's lighting and in some ways they kind of counterpoint to each other because if you take away all the camera work the lighting is not garish in in my opinion it's not like it's dramatic it, it but it, it's all like lifted from very realistic like motivations you know it's augmented to what you would have re- realistically but then you look at the camera work separately i mean very early i mean there's whip pans and the cameras move very quickly and you could you could say it's almost like kind of an early maybe Inspiration from like a Scorsese, like uh, you think you think of *Raging Bull* in the bull, you know, fighting sequences and there's whips into pushes and there's like energy and I and I know it's very early, like kind of spoke to each character, like the the kid is running late to the um, uh, Stanley who's going to be in the, the what kids will know early on when you're introduced, is very handheld and very like they're running late and. I mean, Julian Moore's character in that intro is very different than, you know, Philip Seymour know, Hoffman or uh, uh, John C. Riley's character, let's say. It was a lot more stable in other ways. So it's like totally different. I think the lighting wise was a, a much more subtle kind of nuanced element, you know, how you see into people's eyes. I was watch, rewatching it because that's something as a cinematographer, I think I kind of obsess on now that, it, you know, when I watched it, my twenties is not something I'm really thinking of craft. Cause I, I hadn't really started, you know, I'm just taking it as a full experience, but you start finding it and Elswitz lighting. I, I think just a lot of great subtleties of how well you see into eyes and, you know, what directions people are lit from. And I, I just, to me, it was like eyes, the way you think of eyes from like the Godfather, you know, which everyone talks about and the the overhead lighting, which is a lot of, and uh, you know, so so much of this movie is about forgiveness, and, and obviously, what what we're what was you say that you know we might be done with the past, the past is not done with us, and, and and I think if you just watch this movie about can you see into someone's eyes or not, and do I trust this person? I, I think really was a, a storyline for Elswit in this. And, and watching the, the behind-the-scenes, you, you see a little bit of P.T. Anderson having initial t- talk with, with Ellswood about it. And Ellswood asked him, do you see this as a different look for every scene or every character? And P.T. Anderson talks it it's like he wants it to look the same all the way through, that he didn't want there to be variations. Because from his mind, he saw it as one story. And I I, th- I found that very fascinating because it makes sense. You see like all the like nine different characters, all these stories, like, am I giving a different look for everything? It's like that was this baseline. And then it's the camera work that really like the lighting grounds you, but the camera work and the, when it's intense and when it's more slow pace. And that's the thing that really like. Has the peaks and valleys, and it's the lighting that really keeps you stabilized in it. And so, I I think there's a lot of sophistication there because I think any a a young DP you're going to say, well, let me flex my muscles, (laughs) right, right, on lighting wise. And I think there's just a lot of understated, very subtle things that Elswit did in this movie.
0: Well, that's I suppose there's there's a real line there as far as like working with the director, and, and you know, I think Anderson is certainly. Proving himself a director who uh, understands the language of cinema and how to use uh, all of the different elements at his disposal to kind of tell the stories that he's telling. And working with someone like Ellswit, deciding, like, when we're going to use the whip pans because this is going to give us that energy. And we're going to, like, just the character introductions, like, as, as we whip over into... Uh, Jimmy Gator when he's like doing an introduction or something, and the, the camera flies in toward him, and we have a really fantastic wonder when Stanley arrives, and we kind of follow, and it's just like it's like kind of his boogie nights, you know, face He's just he all it's over the place, nights, we're going right. everywhere. But then you're also looking at, I, I, I it struck me that w- there was a scene between John C. Riley and uh, Melora Walters where it's when he comes into her house and the music's really loud. Oh, no, right when he first meets her. When he first meets her. And uh, it's it's around the time when she's given him the coffee. And it's a wonder. And like we're staring at the two of them for a very long time, just having a conversation. and, And as the director, knowing, okay, this is also going to be a wonder. We're going to allow these two performers to actually give the scene the energy that it needs. I don't need to be moving the camera all over the place. I don't need to be cutting. I'm just going to allow it to live and breathe as is. As opposed to other times when he does have some other fast cuts. And that's, that's the interesting thing that I suppose is the director and the DP working closely together to, to, to make sure that they understand the way that the energy is flowing through the film, especially knowing that, you know, these films are completely shot out of order. And it all gets edited, and stuff gets cut and left on the editing room floor. So it's like trying to figure out: we want to keep this energy here, and then you know tomorrow we're going to be filming a scene that is at the end of the movie, and we really need a lot of energy. And you know, it's it's complicated, and it's it's the exciting nature of film. It's a it's a very thought out paced movie in that way, and yeah, there are a lot of.
2: Scenes that don't cut, you know, where a lot of emotional scenes, I mean, maybe there's a cut of a back and forth, but it it largely like holds on a performance when it needs to hold on a performance. Yeah, it's not like you're just doing coverage in a movie, like there's real intention to what they're doing when for what scene. And watching, I just feel very guided and assured from a very good, like an amazing filmmaker in that way. Yeah, I mean there there's some amazing performance. I the the two scenes that I mean maybe it's not really summit, but I I I do think even the it, it's Tom Cruise's best performance in a movie. He's so good in this, so good. Yeah, and, and that scene that he has with Jason Robards is like incredible. And then a scene, and I've always mentioned this too, like talking to my wife about it, but like the the Julia Moore scene when she goes into the, the pharmacy. pharmacy. I was absolutely going to bring that I, up. I still like her performance. At, and it's not very long, but the whole like shame on you scene, like there's just incredible performances and so emotional and like, so peak defying that uh, it's, yeah, you just you're drawn in. I, I just it, it always gave me chills that one particular scene uh, with the Julianne Moore in the pharmacy scene, and just the pass, passive aggressive pharmacist, the passive aggressive, yeah. and and her just like <laughs> shame on you and the. Yeah.
1: There are those sequences of vulnerability are are like throughout this movie they 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 like perforate the movie right because I think you know I have to go to the bathroom is another one of those like the shame that is felt when he's sitting on that stage under the spotlights and then again when Riley looks across at her and says I lost my gun today like that is soul crushing performance right there soul soul crushing demonstration of vulnerability on screen and all of these moments tie together when you talk about this as a film about forgiveness yeah i mean that is is what defines the essence of this movie is these performances of uh, yeah. these people
2: and and it's like you said it, it doesn't it, he's not whip panning around those scenes like he knows what you use at what time, and it's like the performance lifts the moment. You're not going to like go crazy with the camera. You, you want to be on that performance, but he creates the energy in certain places. And it, and I'd be curious how that process worked with him and Elswit, like how mapped out, because obviously he had this in his head. He knew the vision he wanted because it's so mapped out in a way.
1: I imagine it like a, a a an investigation map, like something that John and Christopher Nolan would put together, right? Like, it feels that <laughs> in intertwined and interwoven. Yeah. And
0: really figuring out, like, uh, you know, does it make sense to cut from this story here to that story? And then figuring out, you know, what makes sense as a transition. And there were some beautiful transitions that i had forgotten about as as like one character would say something and i'm forgetting which one it is now i I didn't write down but it was something like tom cruise says something when he's up on stage and whatever he says we cut to uh somebody else and it was just like it was timed perfectly to cut to that character because uh of what he had just said led us into like what they were doing and yeah And that's, like, I just imagine the screenwriting process, too, from the beginning. Like, thinking about how how can I take all these and, like, mesh them. Yeah. I can't even even speak
2: to the screen. I mean, I'm not a screenwriter for Trey. But I I had heard him speak a couple times, you know, where he talked, at least for writing Magnolia, that he saw it as, he talked about it as uh, ironing and that he would write... And then go back and to the beginning and then write a little bit further and go back and refine and write a little bit further. So he envisioned it as like you're ironing this uh, sheet and then you go back and you go a little bit further and you're a little bit further. And so he kept on. That was his process as he described it, you know, for writing it. To go back to your point, the idea that he would end on one like the Tom Cruise element, uh, the Jt Mackey thing, um and then go into another. It reminds me of that idea, like the cinematography. Like he wants all the look to be tonal. I, I think there's a real grounded. So he allowed that he could flow from one thing to another, kind of effortlessly in a narrative way, and you never feel like you're lost in any way. It's it's like the emotions pushing us forward. That's why it just feels like a music composition to me, like. I'm not really thinking of, you know, you go back and be analytical about it and how all these stories intertwine in a very heady way. But just from like the first viewing it, you're just kind of being pushed along emotionally, emotionally, emotionally. And each story kind of informs the next, informs the next. And you just, it's all kind of one arc in a way for everybody that just kind of keeps pushing forward and i think that's how maybe he saw it maybe subconsciously and so he wasn't as concerned about drifting from story to story and and whether you're lost or not because it's all pushing together you know to one like
0: culmination and i think the the unification of kind of that operatic feel paired with having so much Amy Mann music, which you already had brought up and how her voice, her, her lyrical sense, like the way that she crafts songs kind of feel of these characters kind of of this world. Yeah. And, and just also just smartly figuring out, um, okay, I'm telling a pretty big story with a lot of crazy things happening, even just figuring out I need to set this movie up with, examples of crazy things that really that happen. I mean, really quote, in quotes happened. And we get these three stories that are completely unrelated to the movie, but at the very beginning that just set us up for, and this also happens, yeah, which yeah, yeah. leads of course through all of this. And then to the end with the, the raining of the frogs and yeah. uh, <laughs> it just like everything he's, he's telling you right out of the gate, I'm telling a pretty fantastical story full of heightened emotions and raw energy and and humanity, and uh, there's going to be a lot going on here, but I'm setting this world up so that you understand it and you can get into it. And, and I know some people who had a hard time right out of the gate saying, I, it's just too much for me, I just can't take it, <laughs> but – yeah, uh, but I think that it's there. I think like right out of the gate, he's he's put it all there, and so it's it's you know it's smart to craft it that way. Yeah, that little like
2: prologue element, and yeah, and with uh, Ricky Jay doing the narration, such a perfect oh. voice for
1: um, it. So miss Ricky, he was Jay. like a
2: magician, right? So he also he's all about the setup, right? Like you see that prologue, and it happens, and then that like organ kind of electric organ of one is the loneliest number starts playing right after that prologue i mean i can't because i'm not a, a super analytical person like what this is but it, at least for me like from i feel assured that i'm going to be taken on a journey in this movie yeah in this very interesting way so I, i i don't i can't see the movie without that prologue like oh yeah no it's interesting because when I talk about like also the photography being very, very grounded, and yet you have these very ungrounded moments uh, of just like that music video, like everyone sings
1: just a line or two.
2: There's yeah. that three minute interlude of everyone, like, they, you know, this big emotional release. And when do you see that in a movie? Like how often in something like that? Like, and maybe that does set us up enough with the frogs because you're on this like emotional journey and you accept the like, to me is like the most amazing, like you see everyone in their various facets of where they are in this brochure. and I don't know if anything else expresses that better than them singing the lyrics of an Amy Mann song in each of their like elements of that, of that beat, you know, it just kind of like becomes this poetic expressive moment that kind of transcends anything that would have dialogue happen or, you know, it really puts you in the seat of where the headspace is of all these various characters. And for me, I'm 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 in on it. Like I'm watching it, and there's never a moment I'm like, "Whoa!" You know, it's like, I, it, but it works. Like to me, it's just, it just it it so works in this movie.
0: It keeps them all isolated, yet at the same time unifies every single one of those characters, which I find so fascinating.
2: And again, is like pushing that one emotion. It's all like everyone's on the same kind of trajectory and i think that's why it, it ultimately i come away with like a, a feeling of it and i'm not trying to understand like how does every story On multiple viewings i understand it more but on that first viewing it was just like this one big emotional visceral reaction to it you know and i was like what did i just see
0: i have to go <laughs> back <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah right right well it's not every day you watch a movie that, that the big climax is Raining of Frogs, where right? <laughs> you're like, What the heck is going on?
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's it's beautiful. I mean, it ties to one of my favorite movies that Andy doesn't like, uh Big Fish. It's like those yeah kinds of experiences like the synchronicity of experience and I think that's the frogs to me like if you didn't get it that a number of these stories take place on Magnolia Boulevard like this is this is the world that we're in the as you were talking about the lighting the visual style is consistent across all these characters it's another thing that brings these together if you didn't get it yet it rains frogs on everybody okay do you get it now like we're all together at the same time and and I think that's a that's a pretty special thing you talk about ironing like the the I would love to see the original script, like the pre-iron script, because the finished one's two hundred and sixteen pages. Imagine what was what was whittled away from that original script. Like that, that must have been extraordinary.
2: And I and I think I mean don't fully quote. I th- this is just like back in my memory but I I think I remember him talking. About, I think he might have written a lot of stuff initially, like longhand on a legal pad. I think that's what was. But I, I, you know, at least the probably the outlines and notes and all this factor. Yeah, I would have loved to seen his process and seen that original piece because it, like you said, it probably was even more expansive and had to be whittled down to this, you know.
0: Well, and I think an entire character thread was cut you know in the process of all of this just to get it to the length that he had and I don't know if I, I can't remember who I feel like I think it might have been the worm or something tied into that story thread I can't remember yes exactly I,
2: I did see there there are some deleted scenes with uh, the worm and also the kid that wraps and a little bit of that storyline as well but uh, yeah I don't t- entirely know
1: wow yeah <laughs> yeah Andy, how'd Magnolia do at awards season? Did it win all the awards?
0: This was a very popular film in the awards circles. Uh, Definitely, uh, they uh, they pretty much planned that with the December release and everything. You know, twenty eight wins with fifty nine other nominations. The Oscars, of course, uh, you know, is a uh, good one for Cruz. Uh, this whole award season, he was nominated at the Oscars for supporting actor, but of course lost to Michael Caine in *The Cider House Rules*. That was that fantastic Michael Caine speech where he talks about, or uh, he talks about each of their characters and everything is. That was a good one. Amy Mann's song, Save Me, uh, one of the, uh, I think, two original songs she wrote for the film was nominated, but lost to Phil Collins' uh, song, You'll Be In My Heart for Tarzan.
1: Chronic Earworm, that song. Wow. Well. (laughs) Don't start singing it.
0: Uh, Okay, I won't. I won't, uh, also, Paul Thomas Anderson was nominated for original screenplay, but lost to American Beauty. It was 1999. This was a very full year of very interesting films, and so uh, you know, it's it, you know, they talk about great years in cinema. 99 was certainly one of them, and this was right up there with. I mean, it, it was such a busy year that it wasn't even nominated for Best Picture, which I you know think it very well could mm-hmm. have been. Um, at the Golden Globes, which we haven't really been talking about in a while, but I, I wanted to talk about it in this one because this was one that Tom Cruise won Best Supporting Actor and, of course, was one of the Golden Globes that he returned in 2021 uh, when the uh, Hollywood Foreign Press Association was falling apart. So um, he has not since been invited back to any of their ceremonies. Uh, I'm sure other people haven't either because it was, you know they, they kind of made a mess of things. And, and then Amy Mann's song also lost to the Phil Collins song there.
1: It is a bummer. I, but how did it do at the box office for a three-and-a-half-hour movie? Did it Did it make anything back?
0: Well, Anderson had a strong $37 million to make this anthology film, which is almost $67 million in today's dollars. The movie opened limited December 17, 1999, on seven screens opposite Stuart Little, Bicentennial Man, Anna and the King, Any Given Sunday, and Man on the Moon. Like typical busy holiday seasons, it stayed limited until January seventh, 2000, when it went wide and shot up to 7th place. It fell out of the top 10 the very next week, but it did remain popular enough through its 10th week when it fell out of the top 20. The movie went on to earn almost $22.5 million domestically and $26 million internationally for a total gross of $87.7 million in today's dollars. That, paired with its awards successes, made this film a success and landed it with an adjusted profit per finished minute of about $110,000. I mean, in the process of thinking about a film like this and looking at the performances, it does make me wonder, like, how much—and uh, this is, you know, always something I'm curious about with films, but, like, how much rehearsal are they are they getting? I know it's it can be a real rarity in, in film these days to, like, actually have time to rehearse, but I feel like in something like this with so many characters, just as the director, I would imagine how helpful it can be to just, like— hear these characters and hear how they're working and just being able to kind of picture how they all are going to be fitting into the world but you know i i, I don't know i mean do you do you ha- have you had a lot of uh rehearsal time on films that you've been involved in
2: no i what i've yeah i what i've seen from the directors and actors uh, of the projects i've worked on they typically come in like a week before they, they you shoot almost i mean and they do their fittings and then i feel like you know, maybe you get a table read, but uh, oftentimes it'll they'll workshop a couple of one or two essential scenes, maybe if enough actors are there or a couple of things. And that's why I've seen it. I, I've never been on a movie where I've seen the director have a luxury of rehearsal time. You know, it's not like a Mike Lee movie or one of these things where, you know, they they, they re- it's all rehearsed and then they don't have a script per se or that kind of thing. And so for me, I always have a little bit of that pressure because, you know, you want to make sure the director has as much time on set with an actor. So just from a pragmatic standpoint, you're trying to make sure you're not wasting anyone's time, their due diligence to, to be able to, to have that time on set. So unfortunately, I haven't been on a project that gets a lot of that leeway.
0: Well, and I think with digital cameras, it's probably even less likely because you can just like, yeah, we'll just shoot all the rehearsals. You know, we'll do right, it all yeah, time. Yeah. You know, I, I feel like that was probably something a lot more with film, where it's just like it's so expensive, we don't have a ton of money to do. And now it's just like, eh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it kind of
2: very much, yeah. There's more of that culture now where it's like we're gonna. Why wouldn't we roll? Yeah, you right. know. And I understand it too. I mean, you know, being on set, maybe there's certain things you have to rehearse. Obviously you don't want to let everything go and you'd be totally chaos on set, but it, it makes sense that a director would be like, oh, I wish we had filmed that, you know? And so I, I think more so now you're like, let, let's just, we'll discover it as we do it. And you tend to just shoot what would be a rehearsal maybe and film sense. And that's more the thing. And you're always squeezed on schedules and actor schedules can be very difficult also. So that time is probably less and less of that rehearsal process and and that's, you know, I'm certainly aware and I try to do the best I can to make sure directors have as much time as they need on set. But I don't know, I mean, I, watching the behind the scenes I, I don't know if there a, was a lot of rehearsal for, I'd be curious, I think they really just shoot the vignettes,
1: get them in, know, shoot it. them I mean, and I, move it on.
2: It was interesting that the and I was just watching the um, Jason Robards like before he did this the scene—he was like in a coma before being on this movie.
0: Yeah, I think he had just come off of like having a serious staph infection that had like really kind of knocked him out, and he actually did, he had to decline the part initially because of all of that. And then they went to George C. Scott, who who ended up passing. And then by that time, Robards was healthy again, or healthy enough again to do it, and so he was able to do it. And then, of course, it sadly ended up being his last film. But I mean, what a what a way to go out i mean just his um his moments in this film uh, are just are heartbreaking and just like that the regret and just the pain and the confusion and all of those moments it just i think it speaks so much to um you know just i as much as pt anderson is a technical director with the camera wizardry and just the movement and the style that he infuses it with he is so much a an actor's director allowing them the time they need to really like put their raw emotion right there on on screen, it's just—I mean—it's amazing that he is able to kind of capture all of that so well.
2: Totally, I mean, he he and and also in the making of, he talks about like the movie network, and they talks about a lot of the performances it's from such that. Such a good movie. But yeah. he, he 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 obviously is like you said. I think he is an actor's director. He's not going to do something that's not in service of a performance of his movies. He's not going to cut away from a great performance, yeah,
0: and there's a lot of real performances in this movie, yeah,
2: right,
1: every one of them
0: and and it's interesting like he ha- he directs these actors to such amazing performances, and the actors are like so terrified of. You know, what have I just done? Like, Burt Reynolds and Boogie Nights. Like, I'm so afraid of this. But it's like one of his best performances. He's so good in that movie. And Tom Cruise with this one, like, didn't want to do any publicity because it's like, I don't know. I don't feel like this is – it's not who I normally – like, the sort of role I normally take. So I'm a little reticent to, to publicize it. And then he's, like, getting awards up the wazoo. Well, I think and people hadn't really seen. I mean, he was a new director that people.
2: It was hadn't only his yet. third
0: movie. I mean, geez, <laughs>
2: it's crazy. <laughs> it's like you don't see any behind the scenes stuff with Tom Cruise. You don't see any this. You know, like you said, the promotion. But it is I, that performance with the Jason Robards is just so. Like it is, in my opinion, his best performance. In the movie. Just so heartbreaking. And he plays it so well. He plays that persona of what he's trying to be. Have that persona of that kind of like ultra male thing that's going on. And then the vulnerability that you start to discover when you start to peel away all his, that he had this front that he has through that interview. And you start to learn like it, I mean, kudos to him to even undertake to what he was at the time and where he's going, like to undertake that character. Yeah. And then he he's earned that moment when he has that just emotional breakdown, and I don't know. It's it's always surprising when I see him in it because it's so unexpected. Right. Yeah. Very big.
0: Well, I mean, there's so much we could talk about with this. It has been uh, an incredible conversation already. I feel like we've kind of used up our time. Um, But, you know, Lynn, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this movie. It's, I mean, it is just a masterpiece and it's absolutely a thrill to chat with you about it. So thank you for joining us. Yeah, likewise. Thank you so much. It was great to revisit the movie again. And I I
2: think... uh, has now inspired me to move forward to to try to find my magnolia
0: you know. <laughs> That's right. You may Absolutely. you may proceed.
2: <laughs> we Absolutely. stand
0: in await. Absolutely. Do you have any places out there online that you would uh, that we should direct people to go check out where they can see what you're up to?
2: You know, uh my website com. you can see some of my other work that I've done in years past. And then I do a little bit of Instagram not much but I'm I'm starting to I I probably interact more on that. People email me here and there, and I respond to them, but it's uh, at Lynn
0: Moncrief on the Instagram So I'm easy to find online. Fantastic. Well, we'll have the links for all that in the show notes. uh, So everybody definitely check it out. We'll also throw in the links for some of the movies that you've been a part of. So people can go watch those as well. Uh, Again, Lynn, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. And for everybody else out there, we hope you like the show. And we certainly hope you liked the movie like we do here on Movies We Like. Movies We Like is a part of the True Story FM Entertainment Podcast Network and is produced by me, Andy Nelson. The music is Chomp Clap by Out of Flux. Find the show at TrueStory.fm and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Threads, and Letterboxd at The Next Real. If your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, we always appreciate it if you drop one in there for us. See you next time. Oh, yeah. I forgot the exclamation point.
1: <laughs> Plus, by using those links to buy your next read, Apple and Amazon show us a little bit of love, which allows you to support our family of shows with minimal effort.
0: the slash originals. It's a great way to support the show and find your next page turner.
1: That's right. Head over to the slash originals to pick out your next read and dig in today.